As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Coming this weekend to Dragway 42 in West Salem, Ohio, IHRA will host the Sportsman Spectacular, offering tremendous payouts and a little something for everyone, no matter what you race. Stay tuned for more details later in the show. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed, where we sometimes discuss the strip teaser and the Saturday night hooker. If that, if you got lost on that, um, listen to last week's show. It was a good one. So today's episode of the podcast is unique. This is our, uh, it's episode 183. So we've done this 182 times. I don't think that we have ever done it quite like this. Um, For the most part, the majority of our episodes, it is me and Jed. We've had some guest co-hosts in the past. Here recently, we've done a lot more interviews where it is just Jed with an interview or just myself with an interview. I don't think we've ever done this. Today's show is solo. All you're going to hear from is me. Um, we have not done this before. Jed is, uh, I guess the, the, the technical term would be on assignment. Uh, for those of you that uh, follow the Big Dollar Bracket Racing scene closely, you're probably hearing Jed's golden tones on the live feed from the Spring Fling a lot. That's where he is at. Um, our initial intention was uh, to have an interview guest or two on this week's show, but there's been so much going on in the world of sportsman drag racing that I just wanted to weigh in and, and, and touch base on. So I bear with me, right? This is new. This is different. This is relatively uncomfortable on my end. Uh, it's not going to be as fun and entertaining, obviously, without Jed. Um, there probably won't be a ton of motivation and storytelling without a guest. Uh, to be completely honest, this uh, this is this sucks because it's more work on my end. Usually, I can just come into this and just be like, just have conversation with Jed, and he's funny, and it goes from there. Um, so this time, I actually had to have like an outline and a plan. I don't know how this will go. Uh, I I hope that you enjoy it. I hope it's beneficial. Um, 
like I said, we needed to, to dive into some real race results, right? Really for the first time in months, we've got real races to talk about. So I'm gonna to touch on that. There's a big weekend in the rear view, and I think you could argue even a bigger one on the horizon. So we'll get into that. And then the main uh, thing that I needed, felt like I needed to touch on is there's just all kinds of, social media is a blaze with these hot button cheating topics that have just resurfaced right about cheating in, in, in various forms in our sport and uh, just from a very much uh, overarching helicopter view um, I'll, I'll weigh in with some thoughts that I wanted to share there so that's the show in a nuts, uh, nutshell we're going to kick it off to PJ North I hope you Before we get into the meat and potatoes of this show, I, I feel like the hot topic today, at least on my social media feed, is uh, NASCAR's decision to essentially ban the Confederate flag from their races. And I'm going to go too deep into it, but this is a little bit of a follow-up. If you listen to, to last week's podcast, I, I started with a, a fairly long monologue just on uh, racism and, and the current state of America and, and my own personal experience. And I got a ton of feedback from you listeners on that, perhaps more than I have from any show in, in recent memory. And it's opened some great doors. So I, I appreciate the kind words. There's the vast majority of feedback that I received was, was positive. With that in mind, like I, I didn't say what I said in an effort to elicit praise. Like, I, I think it comes through from um, last week's show. And if you haven't listened, listen. Um, but I've been challenging myself to think and I, uh, in, in ways that I, I don't think I've ever had to in my life. And I wanted to challenge you, the listener, to do the same. The result has been, over the course of the past week, some really great conversation with several racers of all colors, or of multiple colors at least, um, that is... It just further opened my mind and, and that has been great. So I appreciate all of you that took the time to reach out to me and the handful of you that we've actually had to sit down and have a, a deep, meaningful conversation on the subject. So thank you for that. And and the, the takeaway that I want to, to leave you with is that this has been a hot button thing with the, the NASCAR um, announcement. It continues to be. And I don't think there's any quote unquote, end in sight. I think this is something that we're all going to have to wrap our minds around and deal with in a different way going forward, in a different way than we have our whole lives. I guess my point is the discussion last week was great. I hope that it, um, uh, the, the, the purpose was to provide a little bit, perhaps different perspective, a different lens to view it through. Hopefully it, it had that impact. And if it did, whether it did or it didn't, um, this can't end here. Like it can't just be a one week conversation. And, and that's the point of this. That's I think the point of the, the protests and the movement in general is just to open our eyes and, and, and so that we can all get better and we can all learn. And that's where I was trying to go. So hopefully that hit its mark. Today's show, again, I, I, I mentioned this in the lead in, scandal in uh, sportsman drag racing, right? So all of a sudden, and I, I, I'm not completely 100% clear on the genesis of this, but there is all the hubbub around sportsman drag racing over the course of the last, what, five days has uh, centered around uh, I, at least what I have seen very, very vague allegations of cheating uh, specific to big dollar bracket racing. And I'll admit, I don't have direct insight to this situation or any of the quote unquote accused. Uh, and, it, and it seems like the accused kind of vary depending on who you talk to anyway. My, my overall take on this is number one, the allegations that I am, I am seeing, which is basically uh, tree sensing, right? Something basically to, to hit the tree for you as the driver these allegations aren't new. Like the, the allegations that I have heard and read literally are rinse and repeat. I mean, the exact same story that I heard 30 years ago or 25 to 30 years ago, right? The allegations that, hey, uh, 
Racer X has a crew member with a video camera, but the video camera is aimed at the tree. There's a little transmitter from the camera to the race car on down the line, right? And um, <laughs> I, I literally, the, the exact same story 25 plus years ago. So the idea behind this isn't new. I don't, I don't know enough about the technology per se to, to tell you that the technology is new or improved. I would assume over the last 25 years, if you could do this 25 years ago, you could probably per perfect it now, at least in theory. Um, and I'll, I'll take this from a couple of different angles because I, I try to be a very open-minded, right? So the one thing that I will say and have always, or have always said, have said for probably the last decade because within the last decade, seemingly all of the emphasis, any finger pointing that we heard in terms of quote unquote cheating was geared toward making the car go dead on or, or, or self-correcting going down the racetrack to, to match ETs. And my argument for the last 10 years has been like, look, if I had a mind to cheat, if that was what I wrapped my mind around, that's what I wanted to do. That is not the end of the racetrack that I would focus on. If I was going to cheat, I would cheat on the starting line because that's the variable. With this, in this day and age with technology where it is, we can all build cars that go dead on nine times out of 10 and low dead on more often than not. Like that technology is readily available over the counter store bought. Where the variable is in today's big dollar bracket racing is without question on the starting line. And if you could take the human element out of that, again, if you were going to cheat, that's the end to cheat on. Now, I admittedly come at any conversation around cheating with my own bias because I have been accused of cheating. And I think most, um, most successful racers at some point in their career have dealt with that. My father used to say, and it didn't sit well with me at the time, but like most things he said, the older I get, the more I realize that he was right. Um, that, that cheating or an accusation of cheating in our sport is actually the highest compliment that you will ever get because it means that you are doing something right. <laughs> and um, yeah, like I say, I've come to realize that that's, uh, that that's, that's, there's more truth to that um, than I probably wanted to admit when I was first accused at 16, 17 years old. So my point here is I, I inherently push back anytime that I hear like broad, vague accusations of cheating because I know what it's like to be accused, wrongfully accused. And so I'm very hesitant. I, I tend to stick up for any racer in question until there is proof, right? Not that I'm vouching for anyone. I'm not going to stand here and say, X, so-and-so isn't cheating or nobody's cheating. Like, I don't know. But my instinct, again, due to my bias, is to always stand up for the racers and be like, okay, are we sure about this, right? Does this story even make sense? Because I just think it's a, it's a big step to accuse anyone in particular. And what I think is interesting is there seem to be things that, that throw up a red flag and be like, hey, so-and-so went dead on five times in a row at varying miles per hour, and how do you do that? Or so-and-so hit the tree and had, you know, 10 consecutive double O reaction times. And it's always so-and-so is always an, uh, a relative unknown, right? Or uh, a racer that perhaps wasn't deemed as talented. Whereas let's say that John LaBoose Jr. or Kevin Brannon roll out and put up 15 consecutive double O lights. They're lauded for that. They're not questioned, they're not accused. Right? So why is it then a, that when a racer that is not as well known, maybe that we haven't heard of, puts up a similar performance, our instinct is to point fingers and accuse rather than is to say, damn, that, that man or woman did a really good job. It's a double standard, right? And over the course of, of basically bracket racing history and certainly my time in the sport, my experience is that I've seen several racers be accused and or kind of publicly suspected of wrongdoing. And those rumors circulate like, like any rumors, like they, they grow whether they are founded or not. And very few, very few 
in my racing, in my history racing, have ever been proven of wrongdoing or punished in any way other than socially. And I think it's interesting when I look back at who typically gets accused and it seems to stick, at least from a, from a social standpoint, because again, very little is ever proven. There's two stipulations to, to really getting accused of cheating and getting labeled as a cheater. Number one, you have to be good. You have to be successful, right? And number two, there's almost like a social awkwardness to the people that, that tend to get accused of cheating. They're not the life of the party. They're not the most open. They're not the most well-liked. So if you're good and you good slash successful, right? Maybe, maybe perhaps there is a reason that you're quote unquote good. If you are successful and if you kind of keep to yourself at the racetrack or may perhaps socially awkward, at least create this air of mystery around you, those tend to be the racers that get accused rightfully or wrongfully of doing something wrong. Now, again, let me reiterate, I'm not defending anyone. I am not vouching for anyone but myself. I will, I will not sit here and say that so-and-so or Racer X or Racer Y is definitely not cheating because, listen, I don't know, right? I just wanted to bring that up because I do think that groupthink can be very dangerous. So just be aware, like make decisions for yourself and don't just jump on the bandwagon because everyone else is convinced that racer X or racer Y is doing something outside the rules, right? So let's take, again, like broad view on the, the, the idea of cheating in, in bracket racing. I have said for a long time, and I'll still stand by this, you can call me naive if you'd like, I do not personally believe that there is rampant cheating in even in big dollar bracket racing. And I, I've said that for a long time. And for a long time, I've been very close to that. Now, in recent years, I'm a bit more removed. I'm not out there every week. And my argument has always been, hey, we can police ourselves. That's, that's what I've said for 15 plus years. And the, the idea behind that has always been, look, if you never turn your head and look and you go loaded on or you just never move on the tree, whatever the case may be, and you do this on a regular basis at a racetrack with Troy Williams Jr., Gary Williams, Scotty Richardson, Peter Biondo, like on down the line, there are things that just from a pure competition standpoint throw up red flags that that caliber of racers that understands what it takes to compete at that level will step back and say, wait a second, that doesn't even make sense, right? And from that standpoint, I always said, if anyone was doing anything blatantly outside of the rules that was creating a competitive advantage, the better racers could just tell. And we would police that, right? So, and I think by and large, that again, call me naive, like I think that worked. I think in the past, quote unquote, cheating or, or allegations of cheating, it stood out because it was, it was obvious. My fear is that as our sport has progressed, as the level of precision has enhanced, the game's different. Like it's so tight. It's so precise. Eighth mile bracket racing is literally my sub, sub 15 package against your sub 15 package seemingly every other round. So there's just not the margin for error. There's not the room for creativity. And if you make near perfect runs time after time where 10 years ago, that would have stood out, that would have been a bit of a red flag. Now it's so common that we kind of turn the other cheek. So I think that it would, it's easier to disguise wrongdoing. I still think, generally speaking, it, it stands out. And perhaps as racers, we are able to, to, to kind of self-police. But I think the ability to self-police is getting more and more difficult as the game gets more precise, as it gets tighter. And uh, I th what goes without saying is the idea that the stakes are higher than ever. If you if you wanted to cheat in our game, it's far more incentivized than it's ever been in the past. I mean, we have two races on the calendar for this year that will pay 
a million dollars or more, right, between SFG 1.1 million and uh, the Great American Million, uh, that's more than twice what's ever been paid out before. And there's big dollar bracket races all over the map. So the incentive, if cheating is your prerogative, is it's there more than ever. And the issue I think that we run into more than anything in big dollar bracket racing is just the, the lack of structure, the lack of rules. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Like, what is cheating in this day and age? I mean, what are the rules? You could say, okay, well, we follow the, the NHRA rule book, okay? And, and perhaps this is a, a big dollar bracket race put on by a promoter at an NHRA track. So like that holds water. But the fact is, if you have been to any significant number of big dollar bracket races, you know that whether it's contested at an NHRA track, an IHRA track, an independent facility, they sort of operate under their own set of rules. Even if it's a, a, a quote unquote NHRA track, uh, the, I don't say the majority, but many of the, the rules on the, in the NHRA rule book are not, they don't, maybe they don't imply or certainly don't, are not enforced. Okay. Whether that be safety related, like you go to a, a big dollar bracket race and you're a fool if you think that every helmet is in date, every seatbelt is in date, you know, that all of the proper SFI tags are on, right? And, and I think by and large as bracket racers, we say like, hey, that's not necessary. Like we'll police ourselves in terms of safety. We're not going to do anything stupid. To, to that, I think the argument is every rule in the rule book is there for a reason, right? But that is the culture that, is, that has been defined in big dollar bracket racing. But I think it stems out from there because, you know, on the NHRA rule book, as an example, um, the delay box and the tachometer cannot be connected, you know, via wiring. And I would venture to guess that 30 to 40% of cars at a big dollar bracket race have the tack output wired into the lay box, right? And I don't think there's any competitive advantage there to be clear, but technically that's against the rules. Hell, um, there's a rule, I believe still on the NHRA rule book that states that there cannot be a wire run from the delay box to the ignition box with the exception of the launch rev limiter. Well, hell, I break that rule. Like I use the, the pro stage output to a separate RPM limiter so that I don't have to run a, a, a starting line enhancer. Like I've got a 3000 chip and then when my side of the tree comes down, it goes up to my launch RPM. Technically that's illegal. That's never going to be enforced at a big dollar bracket race. And again, I don't believe it's a competitive advantage. So I'm not saying that it should be enforced. I'm just saying that there is not a set of rules that govern big dollar bracket racing. And to that point, if the proverbial smoking gun fell out on the starting line, like whatever that is, if you think it's a tree sensor or a quote unquote Matty box or a uh, slew rate controller, whatever, like that, the smoking gun falls out on the starting line, what would be done? Like, are there even grounds technically, legally, however you want to look at this, at the typical big dollar bracket race, are there even grounds for disqualification? Because the rules are more implicit than explicit. And I think most of us as big dollar bracket racers would say, okay, there's a lot of technology available. There's a lot of quote unquote gray areas, but I think we could agree in terms of the spirit of the rules right? Because I've, we've gone a long way in just allowing delay boxes and uh, all of the technology that has infiltrated our sport, rightfully or wrongfully. But I think we could all agree that in theory, uh, right and wrong, right? As long as the, the driver is in control, so the, the driver uh, manipulates the starting line sequence, right? It's the driver that lets go of the button, right? The, the, the driver controls reaction time. And that down track performance cannot be self-corrected. Like there is nothing computerized on the car that makes it, that forces it to speed up or slow down to meet a predetermined, whether it's RPM or uh, wheel speed or whatever, right? Like it's, it's fine if you want to spray the nitrous, it's fine if you want to hit the brakes, as long as the driver controls that. I think that's in, in theory that the, the, however you need to word that, like that is the spirit behind the rules that the driver still has control and to, to, to basically start the clocks and stop the clocks. Okay. 
So if we could all agree on that, that's cool, but it's implicit, it's not explicit, explicit. So if the smoking gun falls out on the starting line, like most bracket races don't have rules per se that explicitly say, hey, you can't have something that hits the tree for you. Most don't have rules per se that say, you cannot have anything in the car that manipulates or self-corrects performance going down the racetrack. So what would happen if the smoking gun fell out on the starting line is exactly what happened 20 years ago at Moroso that we didn't learn a thing from. You just have a damn riot because there's no structure. And that is a problem. You, it's, a, it's a lack of enforcement. It's a lack of, of structure in general that, that obviously you can't enforce rules that you don't have. And the fact that purses continue escalating, so the incentive to do wrong is, is higher than ever. With all of that said, like I can sum this up by saying two things that I don't, the, I'll say two things that I think most would construe as, as counterintuitive, but they are not counterintuitive because I can both believe that there is not rampant cheating in sportsman drag racing. I think the potential is there, but I don't, I, I personally do not believe it is a problem currently. And at the same time, I can also say that we are racing for enough money that there needs to be more rules. Because if I'm right, and this is not necessarily a problem now, the potential definitely exists for this to be a huge problem sooner or later. And I've, I've preached this idea before, but in my mind, the ultimate fix is, is relatively simple. Like it sounds simple. It's harder because there are there are egos involved and there's not necessarily a consortium or a collection of big dollar promoters. Like I think unfortunate as it may be, the majority of big dollar promoters see one another as competitors more so than allies. But I do think that the fix here is for there to be some sort of consortium between the big dollar bracket racing promoters of, you know, in our, in our country, on our continent, that develop some form of easily identifiable common rules that basically govern all of these events, right? It could be very simple. It could be as simple as basically explicitly stating what I just implicitly, said, implicitly uh, implied. That, that, that's, that's, a, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's counterintuitive as well. Um, and just saying like, hey, look, the driver has to be in control. Like they're, they're, but, but put that in writing. Right? It may be as simple as that. Getting together so that we have a, a written set of rules across the board. And then it's going to take some, and I think this is actually at this point, this could be a very opportunistic and or entrepreneurial tech man, right? That, that is willing to actually, A, understands at least to some extent what they're looking at. And that's difficult in this day and age because I personally, like I, I feel like I'm, familiar with the majority of racing technology that's available and what things are supposed to look like and where things are supposed to be wired with that in mind like i don't know what i don't know so you could have something on your car that's completely outside the rules i think i would have a difficult time finding it assuming that it's well hidden and i would assume if you're going to go to this trouble it would be well hidden but i think that there is definitely room and opportunity because there's so much money involved in this. There's money involved not only from the racer, but from the promoter standpoint. I think there is, uh, there could easily be uh, structured into the profit to pay a tech man or a tech crew. And I shouldn't say tech man or woman slash tech crew. And I really think it's a business model for an opportunistic entrepreneurial person or group of people to take that on. And now it has to be completely objective. Like I think Cody Harger does a great job at the million, but Cody's a racer. And I think the, I think that just creates, I don't think in Cody's instance, it is necessarily a conflict of interest, but it creates the look of a conflict of interest. When your tech man is in the semifinals, there are racers that are going to say, whoa, right? Like I, it's just, that can't be where this enforcement comes from. And I think even more so than that, it goes deeper. Like Cody comes from racing. I don't mean to single Cody out here. I just feel like he's the most uh, well-known, you know, tech official in, in this form of racing. 
um, like he's got a group of people that he runs with. So it's like, it's no, it's no um, secret that Cody and Johnny Ezell are close. Well, when Johnny wins and Cody's the tech man, there is a segment of people that are going to talk, right? And it's just not a good look. So I was just saying this has to be, to really be objective and to be seen, forget the, the actual practice, to be seen as this independent, objective, governing force, I think that you look for someone that is just that, that is not necessarily a racer, that doesn't have a huge history in racing, but that knows what they're looking at. And I realize that all of that is much easier said than done. Like that person and or people is difficult to find. But I think that that's, that that's what I'll call for out of this. Like I'm not going to sit here and call for anyone's head that, you know, this accusation of cheating, like I tend to give the racers the benefit of the doubt. And maybe there's far more wrongdoing going on than I realize. Um, but what I would call for far more so than that is this is the wake up call, especially with the amount of money that is on the line for these promoters to, to get together on some level and say, okay, here are the rules that we can all agree on. And now let's go find someone that can enforce them with consistency um, and objectively and independently. Like, I hope that is ultimately the, the resolution of this discussion. Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services, quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. In addition to this tree reading controversy in big dollar bracket racing, um, as if that wasn't enough scandal for one week, there's also been considerable discussion about, I, I guess the best way to put this would be performance enhancing drugs in, uh, in, in sports and racing, specifically uh, the use of Adderall. And this isn't new either. Like I, I, I went on the rant um, about uh, tree reading devices and how like we were hearing the same stories 30 plus years ago. Adderall for me in racing hasn't been that long, but this is something that I've heard rumblings of for the better part of a decade. And I'll be completely honest, I need to do some research here. Like I'm not the guy to weigh in on this. Like I am, I am the racer that won't drink a Coke, right? Like I just, I don't want to put anything into my body that I feel like would um, disrupt my natural state or, or train of thought. And I take that to a, a, what many of you would, would look at as an absurd extreme. So I am not the guy that's going to start popping pills, whether, and it may be a huge benefit. Like I don't, I, I have no idea. Obviously I, I've, I've never tried anything like that. Um, I've spoken to a, a few racers that have either dabbled with it or, or seem to have insight from, from people that have, and perhaps it could be a, a monumental benefit. I think, uh, I guess my takeaway is that I don't, I feel ignorant in this regard. I'm not educated on it. If this is something that persists, if this is something that you, the listener, want to have a better grasp of, um, because frankly, like this is something I would never consider personally. Um, and not just because like, I feel like it's a huge competitive advantage. Like I'm just not big on putting anything into my body, right? Like I, I, I don't drink Coke, I don't drink coffee, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna pop a pill. But with that said, if this is something worth discussing if this is something that you want to know more about and frankly if this becomes or continues to be a, a bigger issue um, then it's probably worth getting a, a doctor or someone in that industry uh, on the show with us to discuss okay like what is this exactly what does it do and what uh, potentially are the benefits in our sport and then too I think uh, important to note because I'm sure if there are significant benefits many of our listeners would consider using something like that assuming that it is within the rules and i i think technically it, it is um I, I think it'd be important to discuss potential side effects of it as well so i, I don't have much to weigh in on but uh, i've been following the conversations i'm intrigued 
um, just to hear what's out there. I don't know if the use of this is rampant. I don't know if this is a thing. I don't know if it's a huge advantage, um, but obviously the discussion is being had. So perhaps we'll delve deeper into it in the future. June the 13th and 14th, IHRA will host a double Sportsman Spectacular at Dragway 42 in West Salem, Ohio. There's $5,000 payouts in both top and mod, along with big checks, Ironman round prizes, track points, and the ever-popular golf cart race are just some of the exciting features of the Dragway 42 event. Along with top and mod, the Dragway 42 event will also feature the junior dragsters, motorcycles, and a sportsman class. Visit IHRA.com for more details. And with that, let's jump deep off into real race results. I know it is mid-June, but it feels so good to be talking about actual race results. As I mentioned in the open, last weekend was a big weekend um, on a number of different levels. We had the first two uh, true sportsman NHRA divisional events, Tulsa and Atlanta, plus a handful of big dollar bracket races um, popping up across the country from Maryland to Ohio um, and a couple of points in between. So we're going to touch on all of those. Uh, as you're listening to this, I'm recording on Thursday evening, June 11th. Um, so you maybe listen to this as early as Friday. Um, the Galat Spring Fling is uh, going on right now. As I mentioned, that's where Jed is. Uh, you can hear him live on the PA. So there are two days in the books already. And I, I think it's worth noting because, man, Last week, we, we lauded um, and, and just kind of in astonishment of the accomplishments, seemingly recurring accomplishments, especially over the last year or so, of three um, youngsters, but the three individuals in particular, that being Hunter Patton, Matt Dattis, Nick Hastings, um, in the events uh, from over the course of the last week since that, rec that recording, all three of those young men have scored yet again. Uh, major final rounds from from across the country. So uh, it starts with Hunter. Um, Hunter Patton has been on a roll of rolls really since winning um, the, the Fall Fling 500K at Bristol last fall, um, but specifically since the calendar turned to 2020. We talked about it last week, but uh, Hunter has won a 50 grander in Belrose. Uh, I think he won two days of Will Carroll's race at Ardmore, uh, which was really the, the first race anywhere, you know, kind of back uh, after the, the onset of the pandemic, um, Hunter won a race or two at his home track, a uh, big money race at Pine Valley. Then he went up to the SFG event at Cedar Falls, Iowa and dominated. He was runner up to Nick Hastings and a 25 grander that followed that up by winning a 50 grander. And, um, he, he was not in a final at the ACE race at Dragway 42 over the weekend, but he made up for that just two days later. Uh, at the kickoff of the, uh, the Galat Spring Fling, Hunter uh, won the dragster race. And the way that the fling always does that, it's a, uh, both finalists get new dragster chassis, one from American race cars, one from race tech race cars. The winner gets their choice. And uh, Hunter got the win there over Michael Nuttall. So the, the beat just keeps keeping on in what has been an incredibly uh, impressive, really last nine months, but specifically uh, 2020 season thus far for one Hunter Patton. Uh, Galat Fling rolled into day two, which is just last night now. Again, I'm recording on a Thursday uh, where Jamie Holston got the win. And Jamie, um, probably most known for his bottom bulb prowess, um, Jamie transitioned into a dragster just a couple of years ago and uh, has really, um, I don't know necessarily made a name for himself. Like I feel like he made a name for himself off the bottom. He's a couple time winner at the, at the WFC among other uh, big races along the East coast. But I know Jamie really got my attention last year at the fall fling 500. I know he was in, he was in late in eliminations on several days. He was a candidate for the MVP award that they do at the end of, uh, of each fling event. Uh, he really put on a show and that just continued um, last night. Holston, Really impressive. Every time that I watched on the live feed, seemingly it was double O and dead on. Got the win over uh, another guy that is was really impressive and seemingly always really impressive, Tommy Cable. Um, Cable was runner-up last night at Galat. And the number that stood out to me reading the post-race press release, that was Tommy Cable's eighth 
fling final. Let that sink in for a second, because when the, the Bristol 500K at the end of last year, that was the 10th anniversary Bristol event. And now there's been a, a handful. This probably, I want to say maybe this is year four at Galat. Uh, I don't think Tommy's ever been to, to Vegas. Tommy's from uh, Maryland. But even if he's made all of those events, that's potentially 14 fling events that Tommy Cables have attended, he's been in eight finals. And he just did it the way that Tommy Cable tends to do it. If you were watching uh, the Thursday night uh, live feed, Cable's just low double O and low dead on, just nasty packages seemingly one right after another. And it's it's funny um, because just this morning I recorded our, our, uh, our Way Back Wednesday segment um, with Kevin McKenna and the year that we focused on was 2001. And we were talking about the Millennium Million from that year at Rockingham. And I just happened to find the old press release from it. Tommy Cable, Ricky Jones won the Millennium Million over, um, I believe it was uh, Larry Nelson. And uh, this, but Tommy Cable was the lone semifinalist. And Tommy Cable lost, that was eighth round semifinal. This is back in 2001, so 19 years ago. In the seven rounds preceding that, Tommy Cable got the award for the best package of the round three times. It was just double O dead on, double O dead on, double O dead on. Like it was same story, same song, different verse uh, circa two decades ago. Like this is what Tommy Cable does. This is who Tommy Cable is. And it's just, it's cool to see him on the fling stage because Tommy is a guy that's always been immensely successful for a long time, but typically like just at his home track, I believe he's multi-time track champion. I believe it at Bud's Creek up in Maryland and very well known in that area, but didn't necessarily travel a ton, you know, wasn't necessarily outside the box. And I don't even know how much Tommy races now, but I feel like the fling events buy in, it's, it's like a biannual showcase for Tommy Cable. Like that's the coming out party each year. Like, oh, it's time for the fling. I'm going to go show out. I'm going to go show the world what I can do. And it's neat for events like the fling and, and like a lot of the big events of today really to give competitors that stage you know, that, that opportunity for eyeballs from across the country to, to be on. And, uh, and Tommy takes advantage of that probably as much as anyone. Um, okay, so NHRA Lucas Oil Series um, returned to action last week. I mentioned uh, Division Four event in Tulsa, Division Two event in Atlanta that kicks off what's going to be a pretty rigorous schedule um, for the Lucas Oil Series across seemingly all divisions um, going forward as we try to kind of make up for lost time uh, with the pandemic. So Tulsa, the, the main result that stood out to me was from Supercom, where Steve Evans got the win. That, uh, as impressive as that is, obviously, congratulations to Steve. Uh, what stood out to me was Parker Theobald taking runner-up honors. Now, um, Parker, if you may remember, uh, ran his brother Travis in the final round at the season opening Winter Nationals in Pomona. Obviously, there hasn't been much opportunity for racing since. I think uh, I think that Parker had been to one other event and lost early. They made the tow from Utah to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is not a hop, skip, and a jump, right? Um, so, and he capitalized on it with the runner-up. So, a couple of things to take away here. Parker Theobald's now been to just three races. He's been in two finals. That's obviously a very strong start to his Supercom season in a year with the condensed schedule and at least a slight um, abbreviation of the number of points races that you can claim and even attend, I think wins and final rounds are more stack up quicker and are, and are more um, impactful now perhaps than ever. So Theobald really, it's, it's very early, but making a, a huge step towards potentially a national championship or, or a top 10 finish. And I just thought it was interesting to note that this basically in the first divisional back that Travis and his family was willing to make that trip, right? They drove from Utah to Oklahoma for a division race, right? There's the financial ramifications are not huge there um, in terms of, of potential winnings. Like it costs probably more to make that trip than he could even win. Um, but it speaks to me and says, Hey, we're all in. We, we were going to chase this thing down. And I think what's interesting too is while racing in general seems to be quote unquote opening up in uh, by and large most parts of of the united states at this point there's one exception to that seemingly and that is the the state of california and to some extent um division seven as a whole like there is 
speculation that the events on the schedule in B7 may not be able to happen. And I, I would think that that played a role in the Theobald's decision to, to make this journey to Tulsa. Like, hey, we're, if we're gonna give this a shot, we're gonna have to go east. Um, so it, it appears anyway that they are very committed to that. And I just thought it was worth noting. Um, who knows what the future brings, um, but seeing Parker advance to the final, even just illuminating the, the idea that they made that trip, I thought was noteworthy. Um, the other noteworthy thing, and this is just a, a, a tidbit from my end, top sportsman at Tulsa, the winner was Glenn Wright. That is no surprise. Uh, the Wright family uh, has been dominant really in that category for over a decade between NHRA, IHRA, what have you. Um, but the runner-up caught my eye. Former NHRA Super Comp world champion, uh, many-time contender for the NHRA Top Dragster World Championship. He's come close uh, a time or two. Matt Driscoll. Ever seen Matt in uh, in the top sportsman ranks? Not only was he running top sportsman at Tulsa, uh, as you might expect, he seemed to have a pretty good handle on it early. Uh, Runner-up to Glenn Wright there, so thought that was notable. Uh, Division two event in Atlanta. Uh, the standout story to me there was Rusty Cook. Rusty off to an incredible start to the 2020 campaign. If you'll remember uh, the very first division race of the season, Rusty won Super Comp, runner up in Super Gas down at Orlando. Um, and in the Super Comp final, he defeated a red lighting um, John LaBoose Jr. Fast forward, what, four months to um, this division race in Atlanta the Super Gas final this time was a repeat. It was the same two characters, Rusty Cook, John LaBoose Jr. with the almost exact same result. LaBoose 1000 thread this time, heartbreaking red light in the final. Um, that gives Cook his second Wally of the season, his third final. Um, and he's currently, and I know it's early and, and the division two crowd has run more races than anywhere else in the country, but um, Rusty Cook, currently your points leader in Super Gas with again, two final rounds, currently sits second behind Kevin Brannon in the Super Comp national standings. Uh, Rusty Cook's a guy that if you followed IHRA racing years ago, you know that he is no stranger to success. You know that he is no stranger to championships. And he's had his fair share of success in NHRA as well. But there was a season in IHRA Super Rod that Rusty Cook locked up the championship in like June, right? I mean, won everywhere you could go for three or four months and it was done. And uh, so he's no stranger to getting on a heater like this. The, this season is obviously unique in that there just hasn't been any racing between February and now. Um, so it doesn't feel necessarily like Rusty's on a roll because his two wins are spread out by four months time. But um, when you look at the points ledger, it's essentially two wins and, and three finals in uh, what's almost back-to-back -back events. So uh, Rusty Cook getting it done in uh, Atlanta. Up at, uh, switching over to the bracket racing scene, uh, Wesley Washington's race at MIR, it had a catchy name. It's, it's escaping me now, I apologize. Thursday, 10 grander Marty Dabney was the winner over Terrell Sinkler. Friday, 25 grand, Lindy Herman got the win over Ricky Nelson. Saturday's 25 grander, Dustin Stocksdale, 8,000's total package in the final to knock off Bruce Hensley. Um, looked like, and there was, a, there was a, a number of big dollar bracket races across the country. I, I mentioned this one, uh, obviously the, the Great American Dream Team Challenge in Holly Springs uh, was, was huge and, and we'll get to that. And the, uh, the ace race that uh, Jacob Elrod, Marco Abruzzi and Travis Colangelo combined to uh, promote up in uh, at Dragway 42 in West Salem, Ohio. So races all across the, the eastern half, at least of the country, all seemingly well attended. Um, I, I feel like, I, I think my, my inclination is to believe that this will continue, but certainly right now, the sportsman racing economy very strong, right? We've all been pent up for months as racing begins to become more available. Um, it seems like by and large, um, we're eager to get out and, and have the finances available to get out. Um, so at least the, the early uh, returns of this is that essentially across the board, these races seem to have been very successful. Um, let's take it down to Holly Springs and that great American dream team. Uh, Britt and Galen had their challenges here, weather related. Looked like they had a huge crowd at Holly Springs. Um, 
and uh, had, a, had a lot of uh, rain in the forecast and rain that, that ended up falling on the ground. Uh, they were not able to get the Thursday or Friday portion of their event in. Still had two 20 granders um, contested Saturday and Sunday. Both were won by the, uh, the Texas-Louisiana crowd over the local Memphis crowd, I guess would be the best way to put this. Saturday's 20 grander, it was Donnie Burleson from the Houston area getting the win over Buddy Farrell. Buddy, uh, Memphis-based legend in, in bracket racing circles. And then Sunday, it was uh, young Coy Collier, uh, who I believe they're just over the state line uh, in Louisiana near Shreveport. Coy, uh, who I think is probably best known for his success in NHRA Super Comp and Super Gas, although he has knocked down a handful now of big dollar bracket races as well. He took that $20,000 check with the win over Jesse Bobo. The footbreak winner, and uh, keep in mind, I did not say winners. <laughs> there were two races, Ali Springs. The footbreak winner was none other than Nasty Nick Hastings. Um, Hastings, uh, who won at the aforementioned $25,000 opener at the SFG race at Cedar Falls, Iowa, uh, just a week prior, uh, made the journey down to Mississippi, won not one, but two days in footbreak competition, and was also uh, a member of the winning footbreak dream team. So I don't know with uh, buybacks or perhaps double entries, I don't know that Nick went undefeated on the weekend, but his record was basically unblemished. And um, speaking of that, that footbreak dream team, this is ultimately the footbreak dream team. Like, I, as I look at this roster, not only is it no surprise that this is the winning team, I would be shocked if this was not the winning team. The footbreak dream team, Rick Bear, Nick Hastings, Gage Birch, Lucas Walker, Charlie Lockhart. I don't think it gets any better than that. Um, it is, uh, that's, th th there's, not only is there not an easy out on that team, like that is absolutely a team of all-stars, a team of future Hall of Famers, however you want to put it. Um, I don't know. I could not assemble a team of five that I think would ever beat that team <laughs> off the bottom ball. Or wouldn't, I don't think I could assemble a team of, of five that would beat that team in 2020. How about that? Like that is the epitome of dream team. Rick Bear, Nick Hastings, Gage Birch, Lucas Walker, Charlie Lockhart. So what Hastings has done is just a continuation of what's really been like this three year run where it's not every weekend, like that's hyperbole. But this dude is getting it done, top ball, bottom ball, um, all across the country for, like I say, multiple years now. It's really, really impressive. This is just another chapter in that book. And when you add, we were laughing, Jed and I were laughing last week, recapping the SFG event at Cedar Falls because things are supposed to be, we, we talk about this age of parody and how precise our game is and how that tends to spread the winner's purses around. And then you see what Hunter Patton's doing and you see what Nick Hastings is doing and you see what Matt Dattis is doing and they are bucking that trend. Like they are winning with relative ease or at least from the outside, it appears to be relative ease on a, on a weekly basis. It's just really, really impressive. Um, so the dream team format, which is super, um, exciting and unique and I'm, and perhaps I should have explained that a little bit better um, in discussing that that footbreak dream team win but essentially there's uh, I think they take 16 teams you get to pick your own team uh, five racers right and and it's uh, a single elimination tournament your five against their five best out of five head, head to head it's a really neat format it's a lot of fun having been involved in it on a couple of different occasions um so again that footbreak dream team no surprise that they won it on the box side the winning dream team was team trampus stewart uh trampus very accomplished racer from lower mississippi i believe down along the uh the gulf coast uh that team included trampus himself as well as um albritton i assume that's justin albritton billy fuller jr alan wickle and Travis Barnett. So congrats to those guys on their win uh, in the Dream Team Challenge at Holly Springs in addition to the individual winners. The last big dollar race I wanted to touch on from uh, the week that was, was uh, the aforementioned ACE event at Dragway 42. This was three 20 granders that saw um, three very familiar, or, uh, several very familiar finalists, right? So the Friday 20 grander, 
it was uh, young Johnny Brandon over Chris Bear. Uh, huge win for Brandon. Um, that's uh, another talented young racer out of Florida. I don't think anyone around him took this as a surprise, but this is the first real burst onto the national scene for Johnny. It went over Chris Bear, another guy that was arguably as successful as anyone in 2019. And this may well have been his first competition in 2020. If not, it was among the first handful. Uh, he advances to yet another final round. Saturday's 20 grander, um, both winner and runner up, very familiar names. Uh, Kenny Underwood won the 20 grander. Uh, Underwood had the, um, the, arguably the most impressive season in sportsman drag racing history two years ago in 2018. Um, and has just been a, a consistent high level performer for shoot 30 plus years, you know, at this level, um, he knocks down another $20,000 win over Will Holloman, uh, Holloman, another one that has really, uh, established himself as one of the premier drivers in, in, uh, in big dollar bracket racing. And then Sunday it was AJ Buchanan, uh, another very accomplished racer from that area, right? Uh, I, I want to say that uh, AJ is a Norwalk guy. Um, got the win driving uh, Vic Ellinger's car, uh, Doris, I believe, as they call it. And he got the win over Matt Dadis. And uh, Dadis, my goodness, like the, it just, I hate to, to, to lump those three in. You know, it, it seems like this year, Hunter's accomplishments is probably, probably stand out, stood out more than any just because he's raced more and he's won more. But it's, it's uh, impossible not to group those three together right now. Uh, Hunter Patton, Matt Dadas, Nick Hastings as just these unstoppable forces who I think at this point, it's almost more of a story when they don't win or when they aren't in a final than it is when they are. Uh, so Dadas follows up what was back-to-back $50,000 finals, uh, a runner-up to Hunter Patton, and then a win at the SFG race at uh, Cedar Falls. He backs that up with a runner-up finish in the $20,000 event on Sunday at Dragway 42. Uh, one other quick one that I wanted to touch on, um, we've been promoting the uh, IHRA Summit Super Series events, uh, or Summit Sportsman Spectacular, I should say. Um, there's one coming up this weekend at Dragway 42. Uh, last weekend, that series made its way to Smokin' Mocan Dragway in Asbury, Missouri. Um, a good friend, Carl Blanton, uh, owns and runs the track there, has for years. And I, I may be mistaken. Um, some of the Mocan regulars may correct me on this. That $5,000 winner's purse of the IHRA Sportsman Spectacular, I think matches, if not the largest purse ever at that facility. And that's a facility that really has a following right now for bracket racing, has for several years because Carl does such a great job. Um, but it's always cool to, to knock down a win, you know, particularly a big dollar race win. I, I tend to think a five grander is still a big dollar race, although it pales in comparison to a, a lot of the purses that are available today. Um, but I think it's cooler yet to say, hey, I won the biggest race ever at my home track, right? And uh, that's exactly what Todd Piper did. Uh, Todd Piper got the win in that five grander over James Kunkel. I believe Todd Piper was perfect on the tree, not only in the final, but also in the semifinals. Don't have any insight as to if the box may have been changed for the final, but uh, at Mocan, they've got an AccuTime system. So it reads out to the fourth digit. I believe he was like triple zero five and then backed it up with triple zero four or vice versa uh, over the course of the last two rounds. And many of you know, um, Todd Piper, no stranger to success. He's a former NHRA uh, summit world champion. Uh, you know, got the, won the trip to Pomona. He's actually been to Pomona a couple on a couple of occasions and, uh, and actually, uh, climbed to the top of the mountain in that field of eight at Pomona uh, several years back. So Todd, certainly no stranger to success, um, but uh, getting that five grand win at Mocan, I thought that was notable and, uh, and had to be special for him. So that is a wrap. Uh, we're keeping an eye on things from Galat. Like I say, watch the live feed, listen to Jed and, uh, and Nate Hershey uh, and JJ. They are on that call together. Check that out. Um, lots of racing to, uh, to discuss um, Chad and I will get together next week to recap not only Galat, but also the, the Derby City 50K at Louisville. Um, CP, uh, Cody College, has a 50 grander in uh, Dallas, Texas at the Texas Motorplex. So, uh, like I say, last weekend was big in that we got a return to the Lucas Oil Series. We had uh, big dollar races in the form of 
20 granders uh, at three different locations, I feel like this week it ramps up even more uh, with three different 50 granders, 50 plus granders really when you consider the lot uh, at various points of the country. Uh, this is the point where I've been saying for a month, like when we get through that weekend, I'll feel like we're back. Um, really just looking back on last week, I feel like racing is back. Uh, excited to, uh, to see the results from this weekend and to talk about them again next week. No shouts this week, Jed, I missed you. This wasn't near as much fun. This wasn't near, uh, I didn't laugh. I didn't, I didn't think I laughed at all. So that sucks. Uh, we'll do better next time. I look forward to having Jed back on. I appreciate you uh, sticking this out and listening if you've gotten to this point. Have a great week if you are racing. Best of luck to you. Over and out. Cause I'll be willing to bet that you don't want none. If you want some, come and get some. 500, let's lock it in on the next one. Greedy for it, I roll it Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.